Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll look at the latest inflation report from the federal government's Bureau of Labor Statistics, and spoiler alert, it's a high number. But uh, before that, We'll talk with Professor Mike Aguilar of the University of North Carolina, who for the past several years has been running an annual fiscal challenge competition for students around the country where the teams come together and devise and defend before a panel of judges their own plans for putting or keeping the U.S. on a sustainable fiscal path. The latest competition wrapped up in Washington, D.C. last week And we'll hear from Dr. Aguilar and some of the students about how it went and what their choices were. Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris, who attended the competition, will uh, join me for that conversation. So, um, Professor, um, I wanted to talk to you first about the competition itself, just to see if you could describe why you put it together and how students get involved in it. So uh, we're a 501c3 educational nonprofit. I started back in 2013 and we're sponsored by the Peter G. Peterson Foundation. And I started it with a specific mission, which is to enhance students' understanding of fiscal policy. And the way that we do that, the way we achieve that mission is with uh, experiential education. So as you were saying, Bob, what I do at the beginning of every academic year I put out a call to action to college students around the country, and I task them with stabilizing the national debt. So they work in the fall and the early part of the spring. They devise these plans. Then they send the plans to me. I pick the finalists, and I fly them to D.C. And then they present and defend their plans, like you were saying, before a panel of expert judges. And uh, just to put a little fine tune on that, the specific goal that they have is debt to GDP. They take the federal debt as a percent of GDP, and they use what the Congressional Budget Office uses for their planning horizons, which is a 30-year horizon. So they stabilize it over that that 30-year planning horizon. So that would mean like keeping it around 100% of GDP where it is now? Exactly right. When we started in the academic year, it was at 98%. So by the second quarter, 2051, they have to figure out a way to get it back to that level where the CBO projections by that period were closer to 200%. So you score the first round when the judges, well, I suppose you use the same criteria, but what's the criteria that you use and that the uh, panel of judges uses um, and, and by the way, people that watch, listen to this program know some of the people who are judges. Diane Lim, who's yep. used to be the Concord Coalition's chief economist years ago and, and is um, uh, the economist mom, a frequent guest yeah. on, uh, on this program. Bill Hoagland's another frequent guest on this program. Uh, we're a couple of the judges. Um, so what is the criteria that, that they use in judging the plans? 
Yeah, Diane's a great supporter of ours for many years. Um, judging rubric, four key characteristics. Uh, first, understanding the current fiscal situation, sort of knowing what's going on, knowing the current economic environment, etc. Two, depth and breadth of analysis. Then can they look through the academic literature and the policy think tank literature to understand what they're proposing? Three, creativity, not just reciting and regurgitating Simpson Bowles for all of its virtues. And then four is presentation and teamwork. Those are the four that we use. And that, as you were hinting at, that's the rubric I use in the first round evaluation and the same rubric that, that's used in the final round. Let's get some uh, input now from some of the students uh, representing various teams. I think we have four teams here represented. Mike, how many teams were in the competition? We had this year teams from 20 different schools register, but it's a long journey. So these are from some of the top six that made it from around the country. All right. So four of the six finalists are represented here. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Alex, your team from Northeastern was the winning team. Yes, that's correct. Yep. So um, aside from regional pride um, and the fact that I grew up near Boston and my sister graduated from Northeastern. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's, let's set that aside. What was the, uh, let's, let's first talk about the, um, the, the contours of your plan. Mike has sort of given what the guidelines were. What did you guys come up with? Yeah. So we really aim to be a bit balanced because some uh, people when talking about fiscal policy, like to take approach or we just like raise taxes or like cut spend and that's all we do, uh, just trying to balance the budget. What we focused on, like without obviously cutting some spending or increasing taxes, it's impossible to reach that goal. But we really wanted not only to increase revenue or like improve our uh, budget of the um, balance, uh, the balance of the budget, we also wanted to grow the economy and to grow the GDP itself uh, because that's really important. So what we did with our plan was to split it into two parts. First one, we improved the government efficiency, which involved Medicare, Social Security, and some tax increases. Uh, and second part was investing in uh, human welfare, uh, improving uh, human capital. So we had a lot of infrastructure policies with uh, especially digital infrastructure, which is really important nowadays. Um, we had a uh, climate policy for improving climate infrastructure as there are enormous costs associating with uh, dealing with aftermaths of uh, floods and um, droughts and stuff like that. And we calculated that we could uh, save uh, quite a bit uh, if our infrastructure is climate resilient. Uh, and then we did a lot of investments in uh, the people uh, of the U.S., so that's, uh, we established a uh, universal pre-K program, uh, which would have improved uh, maternal labor participation rates. Uh, it would have yielded uh, a lot of GDP uh, 18 years down the line, because it takes 18 years to grow an 18-year-old. Um, and um, we also tackled immigration as right now it's, the immigration system is quite convoluted and uh, prevents a lot of talent from coming in and they have to go through a lot of sacrifices and often like change visa statuses and be in this uncertain position. Uh, so, uh, and given the recent events, we think uh, like immigration is also a great geopolitical tool because we would be able to drain our adversaries from critical talent. <laughs> uh, 
so to speak. Um, so that was basically the gist of it. And one of the biggest savings was actually on interest rates. So by saving early on, we prevent a lot of spending on interest later down the line. And in total, uh, we calculated that we would have saved 24% of uh, GDP over the 30 years um, just on interest rates. So it just shows how important it is to take uh, actions early on rather than let them, you know, hang around. Um, thank you, uh, Alex. Uh, Antonia? I am Antonia Snyder. I am in Cambridge, Ohio, and I go to Muskingum University. Uh, this is the first time that our university decided to enter the challenge, and we actually did so for our senior seminar project. So uh, we kind of started from the bottom up. It was a great experience for our plan. We split our um, plan into three categories, which were safeguarding current benefits, working towards a better future. And then we had a category for fuel. Uh, we had areas and healthcare, uh, Medicare reform, social security, and then we had infrastructure and we also did things through tax reform and we cut some of defense. So uh, most of ours was from uh, raising taxes. However, we did implement a few programs that would cost money as well that would raise GDP. We also wanted to focus on bettering the economy as well. Well, that makes a great deal of sense. Zachary from University of Wisconsin. Our policy platform was, I think one of the unique parts that we did is we tried to solve multiple problems at once. So one of the other sort of existential threats facing the US economy is an aging population. This is something that we see in most developed economies, whereas people get older, there are a bunch of add-on effects as part of that. And one interesting part is that they affect the economy in a very similar way to the debt. You get a lot of short-term spending as people hit retirement and they pull out of their savings and it reduces the amount of long-term savings in the economy because you're, um, I mean, the savings pile up right before people hit retirement, but once baby boomers hit retirement, we're going to see this exodus of savings and the long-term health could be at risk. So one of the things that we did is to the extent that rising debts and an aging population both cut into private capital, we focused on a couple of policies that would re-increase it. Um, you know, the obvious being you reduce government debt, you reduce the amount of money going into treasuries, it gets rerouted elsewhere. The other policy that we did is um, revolved around social security. Right now, Social Security is expected to essentially run out of money by 2032, 2035-ish, um, you know, early 2030s. And to the extent that there is an almost certainty of failure, we decided that a degree of market risk was palatable. So we, um, as part of our plan, introduced the Social Security Fund to market level investments, which would increase private capital because you're now taking them out of what they're no normally holding government treasuries. Now you're holding it in more productive assets. So it both increases funding and helps solve the social security problem while simultaneously solving you know, a larger economic problem in the process. Thank you. And uh, Danny. Yes, I'm Danny Sierra from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And I would say our approach to this was 
similar to what the other teams have said, we put a heavy emphasis on increasing uh, GDP and we specifically targeted human capital and productivity. So one of our proposals was to increase immigration um, following a bunch of uh, bunch of proposals from the Gang of Eight bill, as well as in increasing the number of H-1B and F-1 visa uh, that we give out. And then for targeting productivity, we, we called it the Department of Science, but essentially what it is is we are creating a new department that had that included agencies such as NASA, the, NI, the NIH, uh, National Science Foundation, specifically to improve uh, scientific and technological advancements that will improve the economic well-being of Americans. That's interesting. We had a um, project a few years ago called uh, Fiscally Responsible Economic Growth Agenda. One of the papers was on enhancing productivity by making investments and in things that the government doesn't often invest in. Uh, and one of the proposals uh, there was, uh, I think it was a White House office of uh, technology investment or something like that to coordinate the, the bang for the buck things that uh, the government hasn't been investing in. So all of your proposals really encompassed some, I think all of them had some new ideas in them. Uh, I'm impressed with the comprehensive nature of them and also the fact that they reach beyond mere fiscal goals. I mean, I think that that's a real crucial thing that, the, that you looked at things like climate change and uh, immigration policy and we're sensitive to the uh, economic effects. Av, did you have any uh, follow-up questions before we get to sort of general global observations? Yes, um, I think that um, in, in talking to a number of the students who were who were there that day, I mean, I, I'll, I'll just say this: um, I'm very impressed, um, and this the the fact that uh, you know people of your generation are doing this and taking such an amount of time, and you're taking it really seriously, and you're really digging into this. Um, I remember uh, speaking to one of my colleagues who was also there that day, and and I think this was actually shared by by, by one of the speakers there. There was more substantive discussion about what to do <laughs> to put our, our federal budget on a sustainable path and attack this problem of national debt in that competition that day than there, there is regularly out of any congressional hearing that happens a couple of blocks up the street. Um, so that, that should speak to just the, the quality and, and the, the, the level of, of scholarship that you, uh, each of your teams brought to this. So uh, it was really fantastic. But that aside, um, I'm very interested in some of the different revenue ideas that, that you uh, brought to the table because there is a basic fact that we are going to need more revenue. So I wonder if, um, I don't know if, if who wants to take this one, but, but each of you could discuss some of your revenue ideas because some bring in more money than others, um, but each of you had slightly different approaches to that. So I'm just curious as to how you did it. How you propose doing it? Hey, if I may, uh, to give the students a moment to think about that, I just wanted to comment on the point that Bob just made about the, the students and the commonality. For, forgive me, but there was two things that I've been noticing over the last couple of years, which is a structural change. And that is more and more the students are focused on the social issues. 
as opposed to just the prototypical Social Security health care. That's one. That's structural. Been going on not since we started 2013, only about maybe the past four years or so. But then two, this was the first year where we're really focused on economic growth. And maybe that's more cyclical given the state of where we are right now. So forgive me. I just wanted to make that quick point. That's an excellent point. Mainly our like main drivers of like revenue uh, savings, I would say, are Medicare and Social Security. Obviously, without those, you cannot achieve anything else. So for Medicare, we decided to allow it to negotiate drug prices for Part D, which yielded enormous savings, actually. Uh, it was, I think, we reduced outlays by $5.8 trillion over uh, 30 years. Uh, now, of course, there's some uh, sort of like side effects with less drugs being on the market, but we found that it was uh, around three drugs less, three drugs less over the 30-year period than otherwise it would have been. Um, the other um, proposal is some social security adjustments, um, where we increased uh, the taxable maximum to $150,000. And we also implemented a so-called donut hole tax on earnings above uh, $250,000 uh, at half the current OSDI rate. Um, and so that yielded, uh, reduced the debt by $2 trillion. And the fact that it was mentioned already that uh, it crowds in private investment, we also found out that it increased GDP by $2.4 trillion over 30 years. Um, and of course... Um, we cannot like go away without increasing taxes, but our tax proposal is mostly just adjustment because we found that completely uh, reestablishing the tax system would be uh, quite complicated and quite dangerous. So we just increased the top ordinary income rate from 37 to 45%. Uh, and we also treated ta capital gains or income in the same manner uh, because right now we looked at the graph for uh, capital gains realizations. And a lot of them actually happen just after exactly one year, uh, which is when uh, capital gains are deemed long-term. So like we, did, we found out that, that it won't have much of an effect that we should encourage people to invest because it's a good investment, uh, not because like, oh, you get a tax benefit. I'm going to give the rest of you even longer to, to think about your tax uh, ideas because we have to take our first break. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Communications Director of Harris and I have been discussing the 2022 Fiscal Challenge Competition organized by Professor Mike Aguilar of the University of North Carolina. And uh, we'll be talking with some of the students who participated in this year's competition. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Communications Director of Harris and I are discussing the 2022 Fiscal Challenge with Professor Mike Aguilar of the University of North Carolina, who organizes this annual event. And we're talking with some of the students uh, who competed in, uh, in this year's competition, which ended last week in Washington, D.C., um, in this round uh, of questions, I, I wanted to ask the students why you think it is important for people in your generation to be involved in 
issues like this and in, in issues of uh, fiscal policy. And obviously you guys are involved. What do you think the reaction is from uh, some of your peers? I mean, to, to other people in your uh, circle, social circles think that you're a little bit quirky and weird because you're involved in this issue or how does that go? Uh, Alex, I'll again, start with you. Yeah, I definitely got some uh, interesting like eyebrows raised when I ex- try to explain to people uh, what competition is about. Like, uh, uh, no, but uh, if we're talking serious, I think it's a great uh, opportunity to like learn about fiscal policy and like dive deep into it. And I think for our generation in specific, it's important because we're gonna or we are currently paying taxes some, uh, and we need to understand like what's it going towards and how will the current uh, policies of the government and current budgets uh, affect our lives um, and uh, what programs are at risk, uh, what we should do, um, what jobs there will be. And um, like it all ties into a lot of it into fiscal policy and the priorities that are set by the government. Um, so I think everyone should be at least aware of like the different parts of the budget, the mandatory spending, the discretionary spending, and at least uh, have an understanding of where actually like your taxes go and how much the government is borrowing to pay for uh, other programs. Antonio? Yeah, so uh, I actually mostly received positive feedback when I explained the competition and our uh, goals and stuff, especially from professors and coworkers. They thought it was an amazing thing that we were looking at these topics and discussing them now. Uh, as for importance, I feel like these issues are very important, especially for our generation to tackle, because although we might not be suffering from it right now, and it might not be a now problem, uh, our generation is going to be the one that's going to have to fix these issues, it seems like, for the most part. So if we start thinking about these issues sooner and start coming together with policy ideas and just stuff that can fix the future of this country as a whole, I feel like uh, that's what needs to be done to address these issues. Zachary. Yeah, um, I definitely got a few weird looks, but I'm used to them. But I think that that's... um, (laughs) That, that's from approaching things from a highly technical standpoint, which is one of the things that our team did to a certain degree. Most people don't really respond well if I tell them that a debt to GDP ratio is hitting a certain number. They don't really know what that means in context. Um, so I, I think you know some of that is not that young people don't care about these issues, but that they don't understand what a particular metric means, right? So if you go on to MSNBC and they start complaining about the debt to GDP ratio, a young person doesn't immediately understand what a high debt to GDP ratio means for them. Um, And part of the problem with that is for years, you know, I'm going to be honest, I was a little bit skeptical to enter this competition because my main experience with fiscal conservatism is 
tightening belts and bootstraps and saying that you can't have climate investments, you can't address all these social policies because the federal debt is too big. And then once those same people get into power, they turn around, they cut taxes, and suddenly debts are no longer a problem. So to the extent that oftentimes cutting the budget is used as a cover for other policies that young people don't like, you know, I think there's a lot of hesitancy around this being a big issue. So that's actually one thing that I liked about your speech when you spoke to us is you really talked about the issue of debt in a way that it could reasonably embrace a lot of progressive ambitions that young people have. And I think to the extent that you want them on your side, you really need to make it super clear that like fighting climate change is not mutually exclusive with having a sustainable debt future. Because um, I think it was, you know, a guy from the Brookings Institution that spoke at the competition that said, you know, I'm not sure how much we care about the size of the national debt if there's water rising over our cities in Florida, you know, um, if the coastline is down another, you know, 10 miles, people stop caring quite so much about the level of a debt. So to the extent that I, I like that you uh, work them in with issues, but I think a lot of the resistance I get is not that they don't think that these issues could be significant, but that there are other things that they care about more. Danny, do you want to pick up on some thoughts on the, on the big picture? First off, I, I did get a few weird looks, I guess, mainly from uh, students not understanding really uh, this issue, and which is one of the reasons why I admire the fiscal challenge as well as the Concord Coalition, because they're educating uh, individuals my age on this issue. Um, as far as import importance, um, I think this is very important because, as we know, previous generations have been sort of kicking the can on this issue, and my generation is probably not going to be able to kick the can anymore. We're going to have to deal with this, this issue. And the longer we wait to deal with it, the more drastic and dramatic our, our proposals and policies are going to have to be to rein in this issue. So I think that's, why, that's one of the main uh, reasons for it. One of the things that I've noticed through the years, and I thought that maybe there could be a connection between people who are interested in long-term fiscal policy and people who are interested in climate change, because you have to be worried about the future in order for it to make any sense to you. All of the incentives in the short term go in the opposite direction. It's, it's fun to cut taxes and raise spending. It's fun to have uh, gas-guzzling vehicles and keep your house you know, set at 68 in the summer and 72 in the winter and not worry about the consequences, but the consequences are long-term. So um, one of the things that always annoys me is when people say, well, unless you can tell me how this affects me today, I can't be interested in it, which is really saying I don't give a damn about the future, which is an awful conclusion to make if you really think about it. Um, Av, uh, jump in here. So in order to get to the better policies of the future, we have to deal with the uh, political realities of today. And what I was um, interested in, in in each of your presentations, at the end of each little section of where you were presenting to the panel of judges, you had to talk about the political feasibility of each of your each of the pieces of your proposal. So uh, piggybacking off of what Danny was just mentioning, um, 
What do you think about the realistic possibility, looking at the political climate today, of getting some of your ideas, which are really good and creative, um, even those that have been proposed by some people in the past, you know, through in the political climate today, which is it just it what what's different now about when there were serious legislative proposals on some of these issues such as climate change or immigration or or even some of the some of the fiscal issues is it does not seem that there are as many people who are elected representatives who are really willing to work with people on the other side of the aisle to actually move something forward that's good for all of us so i'm wondering from, from each of your teams is as much time as we have left. What do you think, what would it take to get some of this stuff to actually pass and get enacted and become law? Zachary, go ahead. You're, you're raising your hand. Um, in one word, luck. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it, it sounds, and I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but a lot of these things are about timing. It's not necessarily about the rationality or the bipartisan nature of the policy. Um, Obama introduced cap and trade when he had reasonable amounts of support, and every single Republican leading economist said that it was probably a good idea, um, at least to address climate change, and it died super fast. They couldn't get enough support to pass it. You know, um, So when you're looking at a lot of these policies, Oftentimes it's not, I mean, you obviously need something that's bipartisan and makes sense and is going to solve the problem, but a lot of it is luck. It's about timing. It's about getting, you know, the exact set of political circumstances where a policy makes sense, you know, um, and that's really hard to measure. So as part of our presentation, one of the things that we talked about was wiggle room for um, that we made our policy have a strong enough effect that you could cut any bit of it or do it later and generally still arrive at our targeted results. But I think in the grand scheme, that's also what you should think about um, in terms of long-term campaigning. I wouldn't pin your hopes onto any given policy, po- sorry, policy at any given time because you have no idea what political winds are going to shift. You know, politicians are there um, you know, sadly, primarily to get reelected, right? That's their goal. And to the extent that a political wind shifts one way or another on a given policy could be passed today, it could be denied tomorrow. So a lot of it is the immediate circumstances. Uh, We can talk forever about how great and rational our policies are, but, um, you know, something comes up in the news tomorrow that might not make the messaging perfect. It's going down the toilet. You know, I we're going to have to wrap it up there. But that 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 reminds me that one of the things that's um, striking about this year's State of the Union address, which um, validates that point, is that the president talked about um, a global pandemic, a ground war in Europe and spiraling inflation. Now, I can assure you that if you went back just a year or two, maybe two years because of the pandemic, but nobody would have been talking about those as important issues in the State of the Union address. And the lesson is that stuff happens. And so really, it's so very easy to put this stuff off. The underlying structural problems, it's like infrastructure. It's easier to build a bridge than to to keep it standing and to do the repair work. And uh, really, we, there's a lot of repair work that needs to be done in, in the federal budget and fiscal policy. 
And, uh, you know, the other th- stuff always grabs the attention. The short term stuff grabs the attention. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris and I are discussing the 2022 fiscal challenge with Professor Mike Aguilar of the University of North Carolina and some of the students who competed in this year's fiscal challenge. We'll be right back after these short messages when Tori Gorman will join me for a look at the latest inflation numbers. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, and in this segment, we're going to be talking with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman about the new inflation numbers. That's right. The uh, Bureau of uh, Labor Statistics has uh, put out uh, new numbers. And uh, as I said before, spoiler alert, they're they're pretty big. So, uh, <laughs> Tori, what, what's uh, the latest news on inflation? So today, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported out consumer price inflation for the month of March, and it turns out that that measure of inflation rose 8.5% in March when compared to prices a year ago. Um, it was largely fueled by think things that everybody knows just from where they where they shop. Food, food prices are up 8.8% over a year ago, largely prices for things like rice and beef and citrus and fresh vegetables. But then, of course, energy prices are up uh, uh, 32% over a year ago, largely fueled by increases in the price of gasoline at the pump, uh, which was up. Uh, it's actually gas prices. This is no secret to anybody, right? Gas prices are up you know, 48% over a year ago and just 18% in the month of March. And that increase accounted for over half of the increase in the overall consumer a price index. Now, when you exclude the, the volatile categories of food and energy, core inflation was up uh, only, and I say this only in quotation marks, 6.5% in, in March. Um, and uh, largely that, that was because of, of falling uh, prices for used cars. Um, all most of the other categories in the core inflation index were up things like clothing and transportation services and things like that. Um, but we have seen a, a big drop in the price of, of used cars, and that's what helped bring down uh, core inflation. And then I guess the last thing I wanted to point out is that <clears throat> we sort of had good news, bad news when it came to average hourly wages. So not only does this uh, monthly report uh, talk about price inflation, but also talks about wage inflation. And the average hourly wage for the average worker rose by 5.6% when compared to a year ago, which is very robust when you look at, at prior years when we, were, we weren't even getting you know, 1%, 2%. So 5.6% is a huge number. But when you compare it to uh, prices that are growing at eight and a half percent, you can see that the average worker is actually losing purchasing power. And where that comes into play is that employees then start asking for raises or higher wages. And if employers believe that they can pass those prices along because inflation's everywhere, so no one's going to notice if I raise my prices, then you get into this whole wage price spiral that becomes very, very deadly to an economy. Um, so 
it's it, it'll be interesting to keep keep an eye on that and see what happens to inflation expectations as we move forward. Yeah, a couple of things uh, come to mind from from that description. A couple of questions come to mind is um, uh, one, one observation is it does seem to be that the, the inflation is very widespread. I mean, even even taking out the the high volatility numbers, that that core inflation number is well above what the Fed targets is about, what, 2% or so. Mm -hmm. it, 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 now, the number based on a comparison with last year, is that maybe a little bit um, uh, high because it's based right. on you know where the economy was last year? So should we be looking at the month over month inflation number? People who listen to this radio program pretty re regularly know that we often talk about baselines, right? Compared to a baseline. And right now, uh, when we're looking at year over year inflation, you know, we're comparing prices this year to prices at this time last year. At this time last year, we were still sort of in, in COVID mode, you know, and vaccinations were just starting to roll out. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, June, uh, May, June, that we actually started to experience somewhat of a normal economy and that COVID cases were receding. People had their vaccinations. They felt safe to go out, spend money, do things. So, you know, right now here in, in March of 2022, we're comparing prices to March of 2021, which were still really low and, and so, you know, because of the, the COVID-induced uh, recession. So you're getting somewhat of a baseline. Uh, impact here. And I think as most economists expect, as we move through the next couple of months, that m the March inflation report that we see today is probably a high watermark for inflation. And that inflation will moderate as we move forward, uh, part partly because we're going to be comparing it to more normalized prices from last year, but also some of the factors that are affecting uh, high prices, whether it's uh, consumer demand uh, for things like uh, you know appliances and furniture and and cars and things like that, that that will moderate because you can't buy those new things every month, right? You make that purchase once and then you don't make that purchase again for another another couple of years. So, their economists are expecting number one, uh, you know, consumer demand to moderate some somewhat, but also some of the supply chain issues uh, because of that will will moderate a little bit. But you know, we've still got some uncertainty out there. We've got. Uh, the war in Ukraine, how is that affecting things like, like energy, but also the supply chain? We've got uh, the longshoremen in the port of Los Angeles are going to be renegotiating a new contract next month. I hope there's no work stoppage involved in that because when the ports shut down, that's when the supply chains shut down. So that's a big question mark. Um, uh, well, you so have the, uh, the other Ukrainian factor is food. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's the breadbasket of Europe. And um, exactly. Uh, I suppose that's an opportunity for American farmers to uh, to sell more, but um, it, it does seem to me that the uh, that's going to contribute to uh, to food inflation. Food inflation. So, you know, I mean, people talk about the price of gas and the price of price of a loaf of bread. Um, the the, uh, the war in Europe is certainly uh, going to affect both of those. Well, and it also, you know, would require our farmers to shift from growing things like soybeans and corn into things like wheat. So I, I, I'm not a farmer. I can't speak to any kind of expertise there, but yeah, you know, we, we it, farmers are going to have to grow different crops. So we'll, we'll see if that happens. Um, 
Well, let me ask you the uh, the most uh, difficult question, um, I guess, is uh, what can policymakers do about it and um, who can act? I mean, we're looking at the Fed to try to slow inflation by rising interest rates, which they are in the process of doing. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that the administration um, can do? So let me let me put this in context and then answer your question. Um First of all, the inflation that we're experiencing here in the United States is not unique to us. Um, inflation is a global phenomenon. When you look at all of the other advanced economies, places like Germany, France, Canada, the UK, 60% of advanced economies across the globe have inflation rates greater than 5%. So it's not just us. Um, that said, the last time inflation was this high was in December of 1981. And Back then, the Federal Reserve was on a path to raising interest rates to 20%, which basically shoved the economy, the U.S. economy, into a recession that finally defeated uh, inflation. Um, are we on that path? I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, the Fed is gonna is on a path of, of raising uh, interest rates. I think the big question for next month's Fed policy meeting is... I think markets right now expect the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates by a half a percentage point. Question I'm asking is based on this inflation right? Are the report, are they going to go higher? Are they going to do more? Three quarters of a point. I don't know. Um, I, I think it's something that we should be thinking about. Um, so part of the answer is what can lawmakers do? Well, we've, we've got the Federal Reserve. They're trying to work on their part of the equation uh, by trying to moderate uh, the amount of money that is sloshing around in the U.S. economy. But then you've got the fiscal policy side of things, and that's where the Biden administration comes in. And unfortunately, uh, you know, there isn't a lot uh, uh, that the Biden administration can do that affects things you know, right away. Uh, but they are focusing on the few things that they know they can touch in the short term, and that's largely gas prices. Um, that's where everybody feels the, the real pinch. And it's the one lever where they have a modicum of influence. So we know from earlier this year that the, the president is, is releasing millions of barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, the executive order was for 180 million barrels over six months, basically amounts to about a million barrels a day to help reduce uh, prices at the pump. Uh, but then something that the president is going to announce today, actually, is uh, allowing for the summertime sale of something called E15. It's an, a higher ethanol-based fuel that's largely available uh, just in the winter months because it adds pollution to the air. Um, but it is because it's a mix of, of ethanol and corn-based, um, it's, it's a cheaper fuel. And there is some expectation that it might reduce gas prices at the pump by as much as 10 cents a gallon. But you know, we'll, we'll see. We don't know exactly uh, what will happen. So in the short term, the Biden administration is really focused on, on gas prices. Um, long term, you know, they've, they've got some strategies for addressing inflation over the long term by increasing uh, the supply of things. Uh, here in the United States, whether it's you know more uh, chip manufacturing uh, or just more manufacturing in general, but also enhancing competition within industries. The Biden administration believes that several important industries have become too consolidated, too much market power is, is concentrated among too few providers. And so they're really trying to address 
competition, whether it's through regulatory matters or uh, saying no to uh, certain mergers and acquisitions, um, but they're trying trying to increase competition, which helps uh, reduce prices. But again, that's a long term strategy, um, and that's not. I, mean, I think it's something that will be subtle, uh, felt over years and years, and it's definitely not something that's gonna that's gonna help the president and his party as they face the voters in November and then again in 2024. Yeah, it's like we were discussing with the students. Sometimes uh, long-term plans tend to get shoved into the background and overlooked because you've got the uh, short-term issues that are demanding attention, and and understandably so. There's sort of a silver lining to this inflation because when inflation gets really, really high, net interest rates get really, really high. And that means the interest that the federal government has to pay on its debt grows um, and starts to crowd out some other things that, that, that government wants to do. Um, and if that forces lawmakers to make decisions now on things like entitlement spending and taxes, et cetera, to bring spending and revenues in line um, because net interest costs are getting so big so fast, that's a silver lining, sort of short-term pain for long-term gain. So I'm sort of looking this, looking at this as a glasses half full uh, uh, approach in the hopes, hopes, fingers crossed. I don't know, maybe I'm being naive and Pollyannish about it, you know, but if this sort of accelerates some decision-making uh, among lawmakers to address our long-term challenges, I think that's a good thing. Well, that's a good optimistic note to end on. <laughs> I try. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, I've been talking with Tori Gorman, our policy director, about the latest inflation numbers. Tune in again next week when we will have another edition of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.